I was talking to a a very senior person in a packaging company about nine months ago. Our first conversation was cool, I guess. Somebody on his board had suggested that we speak and, you know, you could tell that he was being polite, but wasn't really engaged. And about four or five months later, he contacted me uh, and was obviously very serious now and was going to have a big event at his organization to discuss how they were going to tackle the way that they operated going forward. And I said, I'm really, you know, delighted to be here, but I'm kind of intrigued about why you've changed. And he picked up his mobile phone and he showed me a photograph of plastic bobbing around in the water and a text message underneath from his daughter that said, I hope you're proud of yourself, Dad. You could see that the pain for him was very serious because he's built a whole life on being a serious business person, providing for his family, doing what he thought was right. In a legacy business, that's challenging. And by the way, while he's got an enormous number of forces against him, criticizing him for polluting the ocean, he's also got an enormous amount of demand on the other side, people who continue to want the products and he's got shareholders and he's got a whole lot of stakeholders to satisfy. And by the way, he's got an enormous number of employees who are relying on his company for jobs. And in the context of all of that, he was pretty clear that he had his values straight at the beginning. And one of one of his values is obviously being a good and successful dad and providing for his family. And that was kind of crumbling in front of him like a house of cards. And I'm hearing that rhetoric a lot from people. And of course, once they get into a place of accepting that this can't continue, then the creative process of reinventing yourself begins. Mm -hmm. Before that, when you're in denial, no creativity is possible. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. This is a long episode, but if you care about business, business school students wish they had access to global corporate leaders at the frontier of change like this episode. Lauren and I are in person. We're talking about multinationals that she's led across the globe. We also talk about vegetables. And we talk about major leaders reduced to tears, reckoning what they could do, but have put off for too long. Lorna has influenced big global business, helping shift Danone USA to become a B Corp, working directly with the CEO. That's a billion dollar company making a fundamental shift to its corporate structure. The parent company made $25 billion last year with over 100,000 employees. So if you don't know what a B Corp is and you're wondering what's a B Corp, what difference does it make? Lorna will explain everything from her insider personal experience view over the course of our conversation. Her story about changing herself from winning the rat race, which she was doing, but not achieving what she wanted to in life, to living by her values and succeeding more, that starts about 17 minutes in. Her explanations about B Corps comes about 30 minutes in. And again, business schools don't give you access to this insider view like Lorna gives. The shift is huge. The shift to a B Corp, not just for one company, but in general, is likely a systemic change to capitalism, but enacted voluntarily by capitalists, not by government, not from without. 
Even if you know about B Corps, hearing her insider view will, and I don't know any other way to say this, it will blow your mind. B Corps look to me like one of the greatest signs of hope and expectation of success out there. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Lorna Davis. So when we spoke the first time, we didn't have a great internet connection. And so now we're in person. And the conversation was great. And I think we're just picking up where we left off. So listeners, we're just picking up where we left off. So let's go. Hi. Well, I was just thinking about you at lunchtime because I read your rant on Brussels sprouts. Uh-huh. And um, I was at, uh, at a restaurant and I ordered the, I don't know, the portobello sandwich that doesn't have bread, you know? Uh-huh. And it was exactly like that, like you described. It had all this crap all over it, all this sort of sugary... Syrupy, salt, yeah. sugar, fat. Yeah, just exactly. it's like those things go together. Exactly. And I felt really sad because there were really nice vegetables under there that were completely ruined. Yeah, I think the rant was, the title was Americans Hate Vegetables. Indeed, it and was. Yeah, like last night I was at something and I got some tacos, which by the way, I brought my fork and a spoon and I brought a little container and they served me in my container and... I looked at the tacos and it's like, there's no vegetables. I mean, there was some guacamole, but I saw in the thing that guacamole is coming out of a package. So they weren't chopping up avocados and there's no vegetables. And I feel like I'll, I'll put a link to the rant so people can read it. <laughs> okay. And, but the flip side is, is the upside of vegetable. They really delicious. I wish I was part of what I mentioned to you about coming over here was to make a vegetable stew. You had already had lunch. Are you hungry? No, I'm fine. Okay. So when I make the stew, one of the things, it's almost all local vegetables, beans from dry, but I get, you know, I take the package, uh, the bag with me to the store and weigh them and nutritional yeast, which I, same thing. And a lot of times I prepare it and people watch me. Like I make a show of it and I say where I got the stuff from and talk about all my not packaging and how it all led to this. And they see everything that I do. And it's not rare. It's not all the time, but they'll take the first bite of it. They go, that's really good. What's in it? And I say, you saw every single piece that went in here. Um, I believe that they're used to seeing, they associate, if I put a lot of broccoli and kale and some squash in it, they're like, well, that's not going to taste good. What's he going to do to make it taste good? mm, And then it tastes good mm, because vegetables taste really good. And people have just lost that. Yes, your palate's adjusted, right? I mean, your palate's different from average people these days. That's the case with sugar and salt, yeah. but it tastes good anyway. Even with no adjustment to palate, it tastes really good. I'll have to have you over here again, because now you have to, like, I believe you will agree with me. I'm sure I will. Now, now I'm accountable to everybody, so there's a, you, you can judge that. And, okay. But only the taste, you have to taste it. And actually, I'm, I'm kind of holding off on getting new stuff because I just got back. My refrigerator is unplugged, so I'm trying to see how long I can go without plugging it back in again. And once I make the stew, I always make like five, six, seven meals worth, so I have to put it in the fridge. Because I was on the month-long trip, I'm, I had to like finish it all out. And this is, you know, I was just today, coffee earlier today, I met with a former client of mine. When I was coaching him, he was a CFO at a publicly traded company. And he contacted me and said, I've been listening to your podcast and I want to change. And I got two kids and a wife and it's not straightforward exactly what to do. And so we met for coffee. And this is my first really, he doesn't need to care about this sort of thing. And my hunch was that he didn't really care before. And the podcast influenced him to contact me and do stuff. And I'm like, most of the time when I was sitting there, I was just talking to him, you know, interacting. And I was like, that's really Maybe there's a change happening. Maybe I'm making it because so far people are saying, oh, you got your guests and sometimes they listen and they say, I really like the podcast, but very few people are coming back and saying, now I changed. And if I don't lead people to 
two things. On the environment side, change your behavior. On the leadership side, say that they enjoy it, that it's rewarding, that they like it in some way, that it builds community. Then that's, those are the measures. Do they change your behavior? Are they happy with the change? Do they want more? It's interesting for me that I'm noticing that children are becoming an enormous motivator for people to change. Mm-hmm. I hear a variation of this, the story that I'm about to tell you. Often, I was talking to a a very senior person in a packaging company about nine months ago. And his, um, our first conversation was sort of cool, I guess. Somebody on his board had suggested that we speak and, you know, you could tell that he was being polite, but wasn't really engaged. And about four or five months later, he contacted me and was obviously very serious now and was going to have a big event at his organization to discuss how they were going to tackle the way that they operated going forward. And I said, I'm really, you know, delighted to be here, but I'm kind of intrigued about why you've changed. And he picked up his mobile phone and he showed me a photograph of plastic bobbing around in the water and a text message underneath from his daughter that said, I hope you're proud of yourself, Dad. And you could see that the pain for him was very serious because he's built a whole life on being a serious business person, providing for his family, doing what he thought was right. In a legacy business, that's challenging. And by the way, while he's got an enormous number of forces against him, criticizing him for polluting the ocean, he's also got an enormous amount of demand on the other side, people who continue to want the products. And he's got shareholders and he's got a whole lot of stakeholders to satisfy. And by the way, he's got an enormous number of employees who are relying on his company for jobs. And in the context of all of that, he was pretty clear that he had his values straight at the beginning. And one of of his values is obviously being a good and successful dad and providing for his family. And that was kind of crumbling in front of him like like a house of cards. And I'm hearing that kind of rhetoric a lot from people. And of course, once they get into a place of accepting that this is, that this can't continue, then the creative process of reinventing yourself begins. Before that, when you're in denial, no creativity is possible. So it's interesting. I'm sure that your podcast is having an enormous impact on people. And I think people are hearing from many angles. And it's quite possible that that person that you're talking about, his children probably had some kind of contribution to that conversation as well. He's a little torn because he's like, they eat a lot of chips and there's a lot of garbage. And I was advising him to work on himself first and not try to bring them along. In some cases, they're ahead of him. In some cases, he's ahead of them. It's, yeah, family's a big challenge because a lot of people use it as an excuse, like, oh, well, if it was just me, I could do it. But uh, I have to understand it's his family. On the flip side, you have people like B. Johnson. I don't know if you know her. And so she's a zero waste person and family of four, her, her husband, two sons, and everything that they, all their garbage for a year fits in, you know, small container. And that blows people's minds. Certainly, I don't compare myself to Americans. It's really tempting to say I pollute less than people around me. The most polluting people ever. I mean, maybe there's some cultures that pollute a bit more, but go back in time and there was never pollution like this at all. So it's very tempting to do that and be like, oh, good, I can be comfortable. But it's, I prefer to find role models who are way ahead of me. Anyway, so family can be challenging, but I also had another guest, Jim Harshaw. His challenge that he took on was to take public transportation for a while. It turns out where he lives outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, there's like a bus that goes directly from his home to right by his work. And, but then he realized it still took extra time. And he came back and said, Josh, this isn't going to work. I've got four kids and they're worth too much to me. I said, how about we schedule an episode 1.5 to talk about maybe we can work through this. And in between when he scheduled that and when we actually spoke, he sat down with his family and said, kids and wife, you know, I took on this thing. I really care. I want to do this. I care about you guys too. And I don't want it to take time away. And 
together, why don't we do something here? And it was a, a, that event alone, my read is that that was a fun family building experience. On top of that, they found other things that they could do. So he substituted taking public transit. They do more carpooling. And that means that they're spending more time with the kids and connecting with the kids' friends, the family, the, the neighbors. And then they just started going off on other stuff. And so less packaging for the school lunches. And it's a building closeness. It's If you're stuck seeing the world from the way I look at it is we have a system, a global economic environmental system, the way that we work. And it's, I don't think you can blame anyone for up until very recently, I don't think anyone could have guessed that little humans could affect the planet on a planetary scale. And you can't blame companies for getting successful based on beliefs that everybody had. Science turns out we can change the world and we, you know, mercury in the groundwater and carbon dioxide, methane, all that stuff. Okay, so now we know. So that doesn't mean we have to stick in that system. If you stick with the values of that system, then you say things like, well, I have a job and there's nothing I can do. My family lives all over the world. There's nothing I can do. Now, I think flying makes people spend less time with family because it sends them far away. So if you think of just Thanksgiving, yes, you won't see them if you don't fly. But if you think of flying in general, makes you spend less time with your family, makes you less connected with your community, then you realize there's another set of values. And in the new system, there's a set of values that I, in my experience, speaking only for myself, but I believe this applies to a lot of people, the values are much closer to my heart. I much prefer knowing my neighbors, spending time with my family, knowing my farmers, like getting exposure to new cuisines from the vegetables that are grown by farmers near me, rather than flying all the way around the world to get something, which by the way, happens to be flown here anyway. I can get a mango anywhere. It's hard to get a turnip though, even though the turnips are really nearby. And so when I connect with those values, it's people ask, why do I keep not flying? It's because my life is better by my standards. And I don't think those standards of community relationships and meaning and purpose, I have more of those things this way. Yes. And I think what's interesting underneath the things that you just said and underneath the story you told is the co-creation of appropriate solutions as a new form of leadership. So if you think about the conversation that that guy had with his family, where he said, this is really important to me, can we talk about how to co-create something that works for us? He didn't have to have the solution. He tried his solution. It didn't work so well. But then he continued to have a desire for a different way. And he engaged the people that he loves and cares about and with whom he has a leadership position as the father in that home, as a male, you know, male adult in that home, to create a solution. And I, what I'm noticing about this journey is prescribing people solutions is not that interesting. Yeah, I agree. What's interesting is prescribing or challenging the the underlying assumptions that people have, which is what you do. And then if we provoke people enough, it is simply impossible to work it out by yourself. Impossible. Which means that the entire old-fashioned military model of, of business leadership, for example, is just inappropriate. So you have to engage a broad range of people. So it becomes... This whole journey becomes like a Trojan horse for diversity and inclusion, if you like. <laughs> it becomes the Trojan horse for increasing the millennial contribution to your conversations in a business because you can't get there without that. So it actually becomes a really powerful, big conversation, I think. that, And I'm noticing people stumble into it. I don't think they expected that at the beginning, but then they realize there is no other way, really. And then that's a, a dance, a journey, a new way of being, you know. Yeah, it makes me think of, like, minimalism is something that I think of people like less stuff. And then when you get into it, it's not about stuff. Like, that's not what minimalism is about. It's about, one of the things I've realized is, like, it's, it's a misnomer because 
people who have little stuff, they're actually about relationships and meaning and purpose. And that's they're maximizing. So it's kind of naming a, a movement or I don't know, it's naming minimalism by what they don't care about in the opposite direction. What they do care about, it's really like, it's not about getting rid of stuff, although that's the entry point. And then as you, you do the entry point, and you're like, first you get rid of a bunch of junk. And the next things are like, wait, this is hard to get rid of. Do I care about it? Do I not care about it? And what does it mean to me? And meaning suddenly pops up. And then you think, well, this connects me to this person. You think, well, but this isn't that person. How am I actually spending time with that person? And then you realize people, like stuff gets in between you and people. And if that's the stumbling that you're talking about, like in another area, certainly for me, I didn't expect food packaging or not flying to lead to the way it is for me. Yes. And interestingly, again, I'm listening in between what you're saying about a new level of intimacy, because as you explain to a friend of yours why you're not giving them a holiday present or you explain to your mother why you're not visiting her for Thanksgiving, your heartfelt values have to be discussed. And so they have no alternative but to know really who you are. So it is a, I guess it's a Trojan horse for intimacy too, right? Yeah, a little while ago, I spent like probably two hours on an email. Someone wrote me, it was someone's podcast I had been on. His helper wrote me and said, what's your home address? And it's like mid-November. So I'm like, okay, they're going to send me a card. So I, I spent like two hours writing a note saying, I appreciate it. It means the world to me that you're saying this, but I don't want to overstate it, but I don't want to understate it. And I appreciate the sentiment, but I'm sensitive to things that are going to end up in the landfill. And, you know, how do you say like, please don't send me a card, but it means everything that you are, would do it. And now I'll have to reuse it. So it won't be like two hours per email. And uh, yeah, it's hard to do that. It's hard to talk to when you're in one set of values and someone's in another set of values, it's tough to get what their values are. But if you don't address them by their values, then it won't make sense to them. People, when they hear me not flying, they think, I don't know, not seeing the world, stuck, not getting a vacation. And that's not, if I speak to them, when I say not flying, I think of like community and values and meaning and things like that. And my family, if they hear the opposite, it's not going to work. And it's, I can't expect them to be responsible for me to speak for them to understand. Yes. Although again, what's interesting for me and what you're saying is that this journey, the really complicated things in life, the really important things in life perhaps are not sort of five second sound bites to explain so all of our decisions, all of our stands, if you like, need care in sharing them with other people. And so actually what I'm finding in this journey is a slowing down in general of my life, simply because I don't want to be sort of slick and superficial in a way that I was before. And when I want to have a conversation like the one we're having, it takes time and I sometimes don't really know what I think. And so I'm going to stumble a little and the other person's going to stumble a little. And so I'm much more interested in having fewer conversations with people that really resonate with the journey that I'm on. And I noticed that I'm doing actually quite a lot of minimalizing, if that's a verb, in people as well. You know, there's a bunch of people that I simply can't find common ground with anymore. And... Um, I was kind of sad about that at the beginning, but now I'm pretty pragmatic about the fact that, that that's just the way the world is for me now. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not spending less time with other people. You're just, you're spreading yourself less thin. Yeah, and I am actually spending less time with people. I'm spending a lot more time alone. I'm more comfortable alone than I used to be, which again, I think is a consequence of being more thoughtful and more authentic about my choices. And so 
I'm just really happy to hang out in the park or lie on the couch and read a book in a way that I didn't used to be before. But then when I am going to spend time with people, I would rather one-on-ones and I would rather longer times. I can't, can barely handle restaurants anymore. I don't know mm. if this is just because I'm getting old. Can't hear people in restaurants. So I find like my whole, that my whole life has sort of shifted, gone down in pace and just eased. And I just have a, a greater sense of well-being really. And are you getting more done, less done, the same done, different done? Oh. Say in a business sense. Oh, it's that's remarkable. A lot more is getting done, but at a completely separate pace, a completely different pace. So, you know, I used to be very interested in being seen as decisive when you're like classic CEO of a big company that's valued uh, to look like you're quickly deciding things. Now I find, I mean, I'm not a big CEO of a listed of a company anymore, so that's changed. The content of my job has changed a bit, but actually remarkable things happen when I slow myself down and decisions make themselves when it's the right time for them to be made. I find I need to go back and I don't need to go back and re-engage people like I used to. I used to think I was being decisive and then I used to spend the next year or two years getting people back on the boat and back on the boat and back on the boat because it wasn't a really grounded decision. And that I was making decisions before they were ready to be made. I mean, it it is very agricultural in a sense. There's no point in pulling out the carrots to check whether they're ready. The the things take time. And so I think I just have a different relationship to time. In fact, a kind of slightly disconcerting difference in the relationship to time. You know, some things seem to be really, really slow, and then suddenly everything happens. Some things seem to be really, really important and then just disappear. Other things didn't seem to be important and appear. So everything's changed with reference to time, productivity, decision-making, everything. I'm reading that you would not go back. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) we're laughing because the expression in your face is like oh yeah it's you know the reason i asked is because everybody when i talk to them about what i'm doing they're like i couldn't do that that's impossible there's so many obligations that i have that i must do and what i'm hearing is they're describing as a system and they think they're describing reality and that system their participation in that system is a choice and which there are other systems and i believe i heard you describing Another system that's equally accessible to people. Yes. But, but I think you also need to get there in your own time. You know, I think for me, you know, I have broken every single traveling rule of yours that there could be. I've moved internationally a lot. And I lived in China for six years. And then I moved to the U.S. for the very first time after that. And the juxtaposition for me of a China, then I would live there from 2006 through 2012. So now we're talking, you know, the sort of acceleration of China's economic boom, whatever you want to call it, uh, maturity, strength, speed, doesn't matter what you want to call it. The explosion of Chinese people wanting and being able to see what Western rich people have. And then the sheer speed of it in front of my eyes was completely devastating to me. It had never really registered before. And then I came to the US and I saw what it's like to live in this world with... Like the end point of where they were going. Exactly. That's where they were coming. And I, it was like my whole brain got sort of shaken up and turned upside down. And, and I, I've never been the same again. And I, I can't work out. It was like China kind of disconnected, you know, sort of unraveled me. And then 
the U.S. unraveled me further. <laughs> and it, it would be completely impossible for me to go back now. Can you describe the unraveling? What was the discombobulation? In China or in the U.S.? I was thinking of the... Ch- I'll do both. Yeah. I had lived in quite a few countries before, but I had never been in a country that is so foreign to me uh, at every level. Like I didn't speak the language. It's not a Judeo-Christian society. They have a completely different set of morality, values, ways of making decisions. It's a collective environment. You know, what the state says matters a lot more than anybody else. There's no religious underpinning of the country. Pretty much everything was different. And I was forced into, I think, into a level of vulnerability and a level of trusting other people and trusting things that I didn't understand logically to operate because otherwise I wouldn't have survived. And so I started to find other senses to help me make decisions about what to do. I was running a big business in China. I, was, I went there to run the Danone business and then my business was sold to Kraft. And I put the two companies together. And when I left in 2012, it was a billion dollar business with 10,000 people. You know, it's a big company. And given that I didn't know what the hell was going on most of the time, because you just, even if you think you do, you don't, because there's a whole bunch of things going on at levels that, you, that are not obvious to your average Western leader. And even uh, that's a cultural difference. Also the size and scale, like even if you were in your home territory, there'd be stuff going on. Indeed. Indeed. And of course that, you know, there's not the kind of data that you would have in a country, you know, in the U S same size business, you've got an enormous amount of information. People are tracking sales and, you know, people track stuff. I mean, in the, in, in China at that time, people didn't track. So people decisions, food safety decisions in a food business, you know, an enormous amount of complexity. And so I landed up, I think, operating much more viscerally than I ever had before because there wasn't an alternative. And I found a freedom and a connection to that that I was surprised at. So going by your gut, going by yeah. intuition, you yes. had enough experience and also you couldn't get any more information. So you just got to go with my gut here. Yeah. And got to trust people. I learned some people, not other people, listen to people, not listen to people. I mean, I just operated at a level of, I think, subtlety. That was a shock to me because I had always been very kind of, you know, logical and that sort of typical trained business person. And at the same time, I really saw that the there that they were going for, more cars, more meat, more stuff, was just just decimating the country. I mean, I just saw the, you know, the roads being laid. I mean, I used to joke, it sounded like it's, it sometimes felt like aliens were coming from another planet and building another road because they were so quick to build everything. And I could see that, that where they were going wasn't going to be, I could see the implications for the entire planet just because of the sheer, you know, numbers. And I could see really for the first time that that was a mistake, this game that I was in. I was leading, in fact, this capitalist get more, sell more, be more, buy more game, which had been, I just taken for granted. And so I think, and everybody who lived in China for any period of time will tell you that when you leave China, you're disoriented and, you know, it's kind of a confusing time. And then for me to come to the U.S., which is kind of in a way the extreme version of what the Chinese were looking for, lots of things, lots of success, but also the opposite with, when it came to individualistic versus collective, you know, the American dream, individuality, the, the innovation, the desire to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it here was also something I'd never seen before. So the juxtaposition of those two things just led me to some sort of visceral realization that that this wasn't where I belonged. There had to be 
a better way to live, a better way to be. And I was kind of embarrassed, by the way, at the end of this, because before that I had been proudly capitalist, proudly acquisitive, proudly decisive, proudly business. I wasn't interested in having intellectual conversations about any of the things you're talking about. I would have dismissed you as a hippie at the time. So then I had to make a kind of complete about face and, and accept who I am now, which is very different. I don't read you as a hippie, though. Uh, no, but, you know, there are many people who would call me a hippie. You know, it's a spectrum. So let's do an interlude. And you are you're involved with B Corps, which is not under, this is not anti-capitalist to me at all. And I'm sure you answer a lot of questions about B Corps. Maybe you could say a few words about it. Because I guess I heard about him in business school, which would be a little over like 10, 15 years ago. And you were involved in, I believe, the largest B Corp so far. Maybe you could tell us about B Corps and your attraction to them, what you do. Yeah. So I'll first of all tell you what a B Corp is. So a B Corp is a, an organization that has two major characteristics. Number one is it has a desire to use business as a force for good. So there's a kind of a values underpinning that says that business can and should be a force for good. There's a legal certification, which is in this United States, in 36 states, it's called the Public Benefit Corporation legislation that publicly states that this organization's goal is to meet the needs of a broad range of stakeholders, not just shareholders. And is that set by ever? That's the company sets, chooses what? Indeed. But when you become legally, uh, when that becomes your, your governance, you basically sign up to be a public benefit corporation in, in whichever state you happen to be in. You can explain the details of who those other stakeholders are. And you make a commitment to have a, an external audit of your delivery against that, that, that goal. And B Corp certification is a uh, third-party certification system by a not-for-profit called B Lab, which basically says this organization is achieving the highest standards of environmental and social delivery. Um, they have a 200-point scale. You have to get over 80 points to get the certification. And so to become a B Corporation, you need to have that certification and ideally, you have the legal framework if that's available to you in the country in which you operate. There are about 2,700 B Corps around the world. My personal relationship with them came when I was working in Danone in France. We were trying to take businesses of force for good to its next level. We had been looking for a, a kind of KPI system or a certification system that would allow us to say, aha, outside people have verified our organization to be a good one, to be one that's acting in the public good. And frankly, there were none that we were happy with until B Corp came along because B Corp is so holistic. So we said, hmm, this looks interesting. We decided to experiment with it. We certified a couple of Danone, yeah. We certified a couple of countries in Europe, uh, companies, our own companies in Europe. And at this point, Danone bought White Wave, which is a big organization here, three and a half billion dollar business in organic plant-based protein and so on here in the US. And my boss, who's the CEO of Danone, asked me to come back to the US and create a full entity here in the U.S. to become the biggest B Corp in the world. So I came back last year. We set up North American Danone as a public benefit corporation with the legal status, and we made the declaration that we were going to pursue B Corp certification. And on the one-year anniversary in April this year, we became the biggest B Corp in the world. And now I'm on secondment to B Lab, uh, the not-for-profit, helping people in other big companies pursue this journey. Because what I saw is that businesses are basically metric achieving systems. And the current set of metrics that are measured by the stock exchange, stock market, measured by investors, 
a simple set of financial metrics. They are not appropriate for the situation in which the world finds itself. B Corp metrics, on the other hand, cause a company to ask themselves the kinds of questions that you and I started off asking ourselves at a personal level. They force you to ask yourself as a company, what's your stance on solar panels? What's your stance on workers' rights? What's your stance on pollution? What are you doing about, um, you know, taxation? What are you, a whole bunch of questions. And so it becomes a really powerful mechanism for not only thinking through who you want to be as a company, but also engaging all of the people in your company and also all of the people that you're, you know, doing business with, buying from, selling to. So it's a really sort of systems approach to better business. So I'm a huge fan. I'm a big believer. I see it working all the time. It's hard because it's a completely different way of doing things, just like deciding not to fly for a year is hard, but it's worth doing. What kinds of things have you seen? So now it's been, what, six, seven months? And, oh, actually the process, so plus a year. Okay. I can easily see how someone could say we've increased costs. We've diverted people's attention from the customers to ourselves. But that's not the difference Why that you're you seeing. Why would you say that? No, not at all. In fact, on the contrary. What I found interesting is a few things that are, not, are most notable, but there are others. The first is there is no doubt that everybody under 35 in, your com- in our company is engaged in a way that they never were before. Because anybody under 35 doesn't want to work for a big company unless it's got some mission that's more interesting than the classic. Not everybody, but many. So there is a, just as we were talking about that man with his kids engaging them in a solution... When we started this journey, we got much more buy-in from the more junior people in our organization on the journey. So employee engagements improved dramatically. Second of all, because it's impossible to do these kinds of things alone, the relationships with your suppliers and your customers get better. So, for example, if you take genetically modified feed for our cows, we made a declaration a couple of years ago that we were going to um, move from genetically modified feed for the cows that produce our milk to non-genetically modified feed. And we made some commitments, you know, stage commitments to 50% of our portfolio and so on. When we started doing that, there was no non-genetically modified cow food available. And many of our suppliers of milk and feed said, oh, it's not possible. Uh, why are we, gonna? we said, well, you know, we're a big company. Uh, there's a big market here. We're sure you'll find a way. And it was remarkable how, you know, the early movers got on board and said there looks like there's an opportunity here. And then within two years, the goal was achieved. And all of the sort of fear tactics about, you know, yield going down and how difficult it was going to be, pretty much all of those things have evaporated. But also we've got that kind of intimacy with our farmers that we didn't have before necessarily. We had pretty good relationships with our farmers, but as soon as you make a commitment that's a full supply chain commitment, like that one, you can't have an intermediary. So you can't buy from distributors. You can't buy from collectives. You have to cooperate. You have to buy from the farmers themselves. You have to have a relationship with the farmers yourselves because you have to be able to see. And so the sort of connections through the entire supply chain have changed and improved remarkably. I think, thirdly, our relationships with government and broader stakeholders are getting better and better. If you take the subject for example, of recycling. People can criticize companies who make single-use plastics all they like, 
But the reality is that if you look at really successful countries and the most successful country in recycling rates and actually using that material is Germany at 92% recycling. And one of the reasons that Germany is so successful is that they've got a fully integrated system between the government legislation, the availability of bins, the actual government does uphold the law. There is a market for the materials that are recycled and there is a loop. You can't do this kind of thing as a single manufacturer. You need to work consistently with the whole community. So, for example, one of our businesses here did a really successful program in Union Square to teach people how to, what to recycle, what's trash, because, as you know, the, the bins in New York City are complete circus. People don't know what's recycled, what's trash, what's plastic, what's... So we partnered with the local government to work out exactly what the bin system needs to be and what the communication needs to be to get people to recycle properly. And then you can work out how to collect the materials and then you can work out what to do with it. So as a manufacturer, we can't, if you're on this journey, you can't afford to sit in your company wherever you are and say, oh, well, we're doing our bit over here. You have to reach out to the government. You have to reach out to civil society. You have to reach out to your suppliers, to your customers, and say, let's work together. And so I think what's happened in certainly in Danone, North America, but in all of the companies in Danone that have been certified, and there are nine now, is when there's a problem, the old impetus, the sort of old capitalist impetus, let me say, is, well, how am I going to work that out by myself? It's not possible. The new impetus is, who do I need to get in a room together to work out what to do about this? And then let's see where we can find common ground. Let's see who's going to give, take, wash. And then let's work on a plan together. Let's experiment our way through. I mean, I think another thing that's changed dramatically is the old model. You know, when I was a youngster, as a leader of a business, you were supposed to know all the answers. Well, not possible now. I mean, there is not, I mean, maybe it was never possible then either, but it's certainly not possible now. And so by definition, everything that you're trying to do is an experiment. You're trying to work out whether it's going to work or not. Get a whole bunch of people together, work out if it's going to work or not. If it works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, give it up and do something else. This sort of mechanism of experimentation becomes one of the natural ways of doing things. So the whole bunch of benefits, and we're just at the beginning of the journey. This is really fascinating. I mean, there's so much in what you said that I could pick up on. And I think one big thing is that when you talk about systemic change, it was something I've been thinking about recently. Like a lot of people think, well, we'll just recycle our way out of this or we'll get a lot of solar and then problem solved, like climate, you know, and they don't get it that it's something that hit me recently. Uh, so I'm taking Amtrak all across the country. And this is a, without question, a third world train system. And in this world, there are first world train systems. And it happened to be that I think there was someone Japanese on the train. I couldn't tell. It got me just thinking about Japan. As far as I know, they have the first world system where lateness is measured in seconds and minutes, whereas here it's measured in hours. And the trains, I, I believe they don't creak. Ours do. <laughs> the first thing I thought was, I wonder what it's like for them. It must be weird. Like, anyway, but then I started thinking, if you wanted to change Amtrak from a third world system to a first world system, what would you do? Well, the technology exists to get trains that move double the speed of ours, but you can't, it, and no one would think, just bring their trains over here and put them on our tracks. Even if you could change the gauge to fit, we got, there's so many things. And so I think that if you ask someone, how would you change Amtrak so that it could go the same speed and have the same on-timeness as Europe and Asia? Everyone would get, the technology is not all there is to it. You got to change, ultimately, you got to really work with the culture of Amtrak the culture of the government and people, eminent domain and all this stuff. And that's a simple system compared to our global economic interacting with the environment system. And so now you're talking about one part of the system, but itself a big system. I feel like this B Corp hit a leverage point of a system. It's rare that you get a leverage point that's so 
effective at one point, and yet it seems to be happening. How did it, did they know that whoever came up with the B Corp concepts, that they would get this cascading of, of effects? I think you need to interview them. They have a fascinating story, the three guys who founded B Corp. I think they would probably tell you that they were just passionate about a different way because they had been sort of in a way burnt by the old system. But I, I think that one of the things that they've done very well is they've held on pretty tight to the metrics piece uh, and they have a new version every two years. So they kind of are constantly refining the metrics. And by the way, the metric system, which is called the B Impact Assessment, is free online. And if any of your listeners are listening, just go to the B Corp website, go on the B Impact Assessment and just take a quick assessment of your organization and see how it does. 70,000 companies have used it online and only 2,700 have actually certified. So actually there's a really powerful tool there. But I think the really powerful thing of it is the fact that it's a movement. It's kind of got a a trendiness, a, a sort of hipness to it that your normal sort of metrics don't have. So I'll give you an example. So uh, Patagonia, we are enormously admiring of Patagonia. And I think one of the important elements of this journey is you know, anybody who's interested in improving their health and well-being will tell you that the first thing that you can do is to choose the people you spend time with. Choosing your friends actually has an enormous impact on your lifestyle because you hang out with people that you want to be like. And in a way, what we did when we, not in a way, actually really, when we decided to go on this journey, we actively chose to align ourselves with people that we admire. So Rose Marcario, is, who's the CEO of, of Patagonia, is the chair of our advisory committee. And so she's been helping us through this entire journey. And when you've got Rose Marcario, who's going to be in your boardroom in three weeks' time and you're trying to make a decision about, I don't know, solar panel or recyclability of plastic or this or that, I can tell you it focuses your mind. But the second thing is that if you look at the way Patagonia does things, again, I'll give you a specific example. We got 84 points, so we just scraped over the 80. We were pleased with ourselves until we discovered that Patagonia had 152 points. (laughs) And organizations are competitive, right? And that's good. It's good fuel. So what did we do? We sat them, you know, we asked them to to get together with us and help us to understand how they got 152 and we got 84. Like, where are the differences? How do you operate differently from us? And we got enormous insights into the way that that it's embedded in the way every single fiber of every meeting, every job title, every job description, every remuneration package, it's embedded in them. And of course, they've been on that journey for a long time. We're relatively new to the party, but that became something for us to aspire to. And now, and they're very generous in this movement. People are very generous and I can call them up and say, I'm struggling with this, that, or the other thing. What do you think? And they'll help us. And so I think, you know, you asked the question, how did this get this sort of momentum? I think that the sort of purity of the certification combined with the generosity of the movement is creating something very special. I think the big question for them, for all of us really, is the speed of 
of scaling now because there are a lot of people on this journey now. A lot of people, a lot of big companies have bought B Corps, for example. Unilever's got six or seven B Corps, I think, that they've bought. A lot of people are on the journey, but you can't scale this thing too quickly because otherwise, you know, you make some mistakes, really, because it's it's a completely different way of thinking about business. And operating, not just thinking, but doing. Yes. And I have to ask this. So I have Joshua Spodek LLC. Can I make Joshua Spodek B Corp? Sure. What does that take? Well, you go and have a look. Is it just you? Yeah. Should be pretty quick pretty easy. Uh, just go on the website and see how many points you get. Okay. And in fact, what I find interesting about it is there's a big difference between people who've actually done it, like actually just gone on the web. Even if, you know, when I speak to people all the time, they say to me, well, it sounds really hard. What can I do? What do and I say to them, take the smallest element of your business and take the most junior person who cares at all about this subject and ask them to go on the BIA tomorrow afternoon and tell you their answers on Friday. And they always kind of laugh and go, well, that sounds a bit simple. Actually, genuinely, you just have to open up the website and do it. And then you, when you actually go through the questions, you first of all realize there's a bunch of stuff you're doing that's really terrific. So obviously in your case, that would be true, but all companies are doing terrific things. You'll realize there's a bunch of stuff that you haven't even thought about so you don't know whether you're doing them well or not. You're not even measuring them. And then there's a bunch of stuff that you've actually, not very much. There's a few things that you've actively decided not to do or are doing that are going to kind of count against you. But mostly people are amazed at how well they're doing in certain areas and the things that they had never thought about. Again, I'll give you an example. We didn't measure living wage. I don't, didn't. We didn't, no. It was just not something that we even thought about. And so then we had to not only measure it, we then had to work out how many people in our organization were at or above the living wage. It took us months. Kind of embarrassing. Yeah, that sounds really like... It's great. It's cool. Like, I mean, better, if it's happening, better to know and do something about indeed. it. Indeed. And I tell you, this is, again, one of the things that's important about the journey is the journey begins by working out where you are right now, right? So if you spend all your time trying to pretend you measure the thing and you don't, well, that's not very helpful. So it's it's kind of, well, I mean, we, we tease ourselves about the things that we didn't know or do know. I mean, and the stupid things that had never really crossed our minds. But then once you know it, then you can do something about it, right? And then you can decide what you double down on and all because you can't be good at everything. And I think, I mean, that's interesting about your approach is very environmentally focused, obviously. B Corp assessment is balancing workers' rights as well as environmental things and animal rights and all sorts of other things. And I think you can choose where you double down, but there are many people who are very good in one area and are really bad in other areas. And we're trying to make sure that people are at an appropriate level on all of the things that really matter. So it's a pretty holistic system. So now I have to, I have to clarify that it's leadership first, environment second. So environmentally focused, but the primary goal is for people to enjoy, is for people to feel reward and come back and say, I wish I'd done that earlier. Yeah. People miss that part in my message. So I, I got to make that more clear yeah. that if I don't want, I'm not sharing compulsion, compliance, I'm sharing joy. That's what, yeah. I'm not the most eloquent person. <laughs> no, no, I get, I get your point. I, and maybe I'm not being very elegant in my response, but I'll say what I wanted to say here is that, um, I have enormous compassion for people who are running businesses and employing people and many people who have very difficult legacy businesses are actually employing a lot of people. So, for, for example, if you think about the, the chicken business, you know, the frozen battery chicken business, um, I won't say the name of the company, but it's a pretty well-known one in this country that makes, grows those kinds of chickens. It's a big business. 
it employs 120,000 people today. Now, the person who's running that business has got people buying those chickens. He's got people growing those chickens and he's paying people to manage in that business. That, those people don't vanish overnight. That whole system doesn't vanish overnight. It has to be transformed somehow. And the jobs element of that needs to be taken into account as well as the animal welfare and the environmental issues of that. So it needs to be tackled as a holistic system. And sometimes on any one day, week, month or year, you're going to be in sort of positive or negative on those multiple measures because you're trying to measure multiple things at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's all I was trying to say. So the, I don't know the right order to ask things. I've studied game theory and it often, it feels to me like oftentimes you can get groups that will work together to make it better for everyone, but there's often an incentive to cheat. So if there's a tragedy of the commons is, is like that. Is it possible that a bunch of B Corps would get together and work really well together and then there'd be some pollution crazy company that would reap huge profits by doing what they wouldn't do, like externalizing all their costs and internalizing all the profits? Or is it, I mean, I guess what happens in a natural ecosystem is that you'll have a lot of creatures that interact mostly symbiotically and then there'll be a few parasites that sneak in and humans have evolved. My understanding is that humans have evolved this incredible revulsion for ticks and leeches, and they're like horrible, right? Like some people don't like spiders. No one likes leeches. No one likes ticks. And I suspect that the world, that the natural world is kind of like that. And is that what happened with B Corps? I'm now out on a limb here, just kind of speculating. Is it possible that there are some that like, that defect and, and win Ah. Will they get shunned? So a couple of important points in the question, because I think actually you're asking two questions. One is within the B Corp system itself, and the other is whether B Corps become competitively disadvantaged because they're trying to be holistic and other people can be single-minded and simplistic. And I think both of those are true. Let me talk first of all about B Corp as a community. You have to recertify every three years. And so there's an independent standards uh, advisory committee that, you know, does all the due diligence to make sure that people are continuing to do the right thing. But I think if you actually boil down the way that they work, they have three really important elements that I think are very useful to the world as as a whole. The first is they ask a bunch of questions that they think are relevant, and then you have to answer them. Secondly, they have what they call a disclosure questionnaire, which is they basically say, we asked you a bunch of questions, but there are probably some things we didn't ask you that you think that you should probably tell us. So can you please disclose what are the critical issues in your industry, in your business that you think we should know? And then the third element, which is really the killer element, is the transparency of the community. So if anybody wants to complain about a B Corp certification, they can complain to that body and it gets investigated. And it happens a lot and it does get investigated. And so I think their view that transparency and crowdsourced transparency is the magic third element of that sort of, you know, triumvirate is really smart. Because obviously some people are going to make comments and ask questions that are scurrilous and not helpful. But the vast majority of questions that are asked by the broader community of the B Corp certification system you know, are useful and interesting questions. And they cause the system to need to ask itself hard questions about hard things. So, for example, today, Danone has a breast milk substitute and infant formula business. Infant formula is an incredibly emotional subject. And, in fact, there are many people in the world who are 
extremely grateful for the fact that breast milk substitutes exist because they, for whatever reason, they are not able to feed their own babies, feed their babies with, with human breast milk. There are other parts of the world that don't want anything to do with infant formula because, because they would rather breastfeed. Both of those groups of people have rights and it's a complicated business. Right now, there's a full investigation into that industry happening that B Corp is doing and Danone is simply waiting for the results, waiting for their ruling effectively. Now, as a manufacturer, that's on the one hand kind of it's a brave thing to do, right? To say to somebody, come and see my industry and see my behavior in this industry and let me know what you think. It's really putting yourself out there. On the other hand, the way we look at it is it's fantastic because you've got somebody else saying, this is what we think of your industry and this is what NGOs and other people who have got a point of view on this, the WHO and so on, uh, have to say about the industry. And they, if we're going to certify you as a B Corp, we're going to need to answer all of those critics. So we're going to make sure we've done our homework. So this, the magic of this kind of hard-edged transparency and hard-edged investigation is a critical part of the system. So that's my comment about B Corp. I think on the subject of whether having these kinds of standards makes you more or less competitive and more or less vulnerable to short-termist competitors is that, you know, it's, it depends on your perspective. Uh, my perspective is that the benefits of that kind of long-term view and that holistic view far outweigh the short-term benefits of somebody who's simply outsourcing problems that they don't want and, you know, doing short-term shortcuts. On the other hand, it's not easy. It's not easy. There are lots of examples in lots of industries of people who are not doing the appropriate thing for the environment, for workers or for animal rights or whatever, and are continuing to be financially extremely successful. I feel like this is modifying the invisible hand idea, this model of a free market that where as long as everyone looks after their own interests, then it works out for everyone, which to me, there was always a footnote of as long as the system, I mean, there's certain constraints on that. One of them being that you can always move to new territory and get new land and you didn't have to worry about where the pollution was going. Economists seem to not really like physics. Yes. And when you impose physics on it, it's like, you can't just grow forever. And now I feel like the model, I guess, I don't know if anyone's come up with like what the symbolism is, but it feels like it's not a nanny state because all the companies that do it have voluntarily chosen to do it. And so you can't say that this is imposed from without. Everyone who's doing it has chosen to do it. And it's a conscious choice, a deliberate choice that they have yes. to think through and to work at. Yes. And it puts a relationship of, it's not like um, a hippie, it's still grounded in responsibility and accountability and hard numbers, but it's more teamwork. I guess it's the difference between, it feels to me, the difference between command and control leadership, what you call traditional military leadership, which actually, the more I work with West Point, the more I find that it's not like that. Oh, yes. <laughs> I should I, change I, my I, language. I in the yeah, yeah, yeah. And leadership is much more effective. And in, in you, if you're going to order someone around, sometimes there's a crisis. And you, like, it, like, we got to get this thing out by end of day. You got to do this. You got to. But that can only work if you have a relationship with the people ahead of time. And then you circle back afterward yeah. and, you know, okay, we did that. I'm sure I stepped on some toes. Let's fix the, let's see what happened. And, but most of the time it's working together. It, what you talked about, about your life. So the B Corp is, it's because I've, I've long set, not long, but the more that I get into this environmental stuff, the more that I realize if you make something more efficient, say you make a technology more efficient. I, I don't know if you know of Jevons paradox or rebound effects. So if you have a system that its primary goals or among its primary goals are growth and externalizing costs. And you make that system more efficient. It will grow more efficiently and will externalize costs more efficiently. And 
you know, it happened with coal. It happens with when you have widened roads yes. and it's happened with Uber and Lyft. Then now people are driving more miles driven. LEDs are on track to overtake letting things more and letting more things. And if you change the system's goals and beliefs, then it makes sense. And so if the goals of the, of the system are what it sounds like what I'm hearing about the B Corp goals of taking responsibility for how you affect others. Yes, I think you're putting your finger completely on it because you inevitably land up needing to do full scope commitments. So if you take, for example, the CO2, the um, carbon footprint uh, commitments that we made, carbon, what, did I, what do we call it? Carbon, carbon emission, you know, car, you know, carbon emission commitment that we made in Danone, we made full scope. So we basically said, we are going to be carbon neutral from the beginning of the cow to the end of the yogurt pot. And people said, how the hell are you going to control that? Because you don't control the cows and you don't control the consumer who takes that pot and puts it in the trash. And we said, yeah, we know we don't now. But once we take responsibility for that whole thing, we'll work out how to do that. And so the dance between declaration and delivery becomes a really important one here. And you need to be willing to lean into a scope that's way beyond your obvious responsibility. Because otherwise, you, as you quite rightly point out, you can't solve the system's issues. I mean, if you're in the food business, which we are, you are in the agriculture business. By definition, you have to take responsibility for the soil, for the animals, for the feed, for the water, for, for all of it, because you're producing stuff that comes out of that earth. If you're in the consumer business, as we are, you have to take responsibility for whether that person who just finished one of your products drops it into the trash can or into the recycling can. Because by definition, that's you produce that. Now, that's kind of, for some people, a radical idea. For us, it's not a radical idea anymore. It's, we still don't know quite how to do it, but we're learning. I mean, the example that I just gave you about Union Square, it's this little example, and it's uh, you know, 20, 2018. By the time we get to 2025, it'll be kind of the normal way of doing things. So I think your point about broadening the, broadening the point of your responsibility is the critical element of the whole subject. And it's exactly what you're on about, basically. You know, you said to me the other day when I said I want to go and, you know, I flew to go and visit my mother and you said Rosa Parks took a hit on behalf of the entire society. Can't you take a hit on behalf of society for not going to see your mother? One part of me went, you. Another part went, yeah, good, fair point. Fair point. Hmm. Because I think that that's the kind of provocation that we all need and the ultimate aim will be the broadening, 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 broadening of what we take. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I want to refine something you said earlier. You said that when you're aware of things and you can act on them. And one of the things I've realized in talking to a lot of people about changing behavior with respect to the environment to meet their own environmental values is that everyone will deny this, but everyone says, I need to build my awareness and I'd be more conscious and that will lead to behavior. But behavior leads to awareness way more than awareness leads to behavior to the point where I would say, this is what everyone will deny that using awareness as a goal and using being more conscious as a goal is a delay tactic. And you can delay yourself forever and no one will acknowledge this, but it took me a long time to realize it. 
that to say I need to raise awareness is delaying things. And I believe that the reason you guys had the change was not, yes, you had awareness, but the awareness came because you decided to become a B Corp. Mm, I don't know. I don't think it's as simple and linear as that. And I think it's different things at different times. So if you take, for example, the flying thing, Mm -hmm. I mean, the awareness of that comes before action for me, right? And Okay, yeah, yeah, I agree. It's cyclical. Because the thing about awareness with the environment, there have been so many front page stories. Yeah. Everyone has already, their awareness, they've over the threshold of what they need to say, it's time for me to act. Yeah. So yes, you need awareness to action, awareness to action. But that's why I think, I think the question of who you spend your time with is really important. So, you know, the example that I've used many times is running a marathon. Have you ever run a marathon? Yeah. You look like you would be. Oh, of course. There you go. So from the moment- Let the record show, I pointed to my uh, medals on the wall. <laughs> he pointed to three medals on the wall. Well, one's a, I'm learning to sail so, okay. so I can get- So two marathon medals. Yeah. So when you decided to run that marathon behind yeah, you- Yeah, 2014. 2014. Tell me the sequence in which that event happened. You mean the day? Like when did you decide? When did you announce? When did you register? When did you tell your friends? When did you start training? Which sequence did it happen? There's an old thing in physics of if you want to make a pizza from scratch, first you have to create a universe. (laughs) Is it something like that? It is, but tell me more simplistically. The best I can do is backward because I originally registered for the 2013, but I injured my foot like the week before. So you have to go before 2013, but that one was marathon number six. So there was... Now you got to go back to marathon number one. So that would have been like well, the late too, 90s. It's kind of too complicated in the sense that all I'm trying to point out is that in that marathon, you had to register. You at some point told people you were doing it. Yeah. At some point, you started training either alone or in a club. Did you join a club? Mm-hmm. And did you run with anybody? I mean, the Roadrunners Association and Organizers run, so I'd run with them sometimes, yeah. So there's a combination of declaration, sort of decision, declaration, action, and then running with other roadrunners. Simplistically put, let's say, four things. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't really matter which order you do those things in, but that kind of combination of things, normally what leads to successful outcomes. So you can declare up front and then start training, or you can start training and only tell people that you signed up like the week before. You can join a runners club and you can run every, you know, three times a week with them, or you can run by yourself and then occasionally run with people. But that combination of being public about it to be held to account by other people mm-hmm. is actually really important because it keeps you, you know, on the days where I'm sure even you want to lie on the couch sometimes and eat Doritos. Maybe you don't. But anyway, on the days that you don't feel like training, you think to yourself, oh, my goodness, I've already told everybody to run this marathon. Oh, yeah, I better I, get out the door. I definitely make, I mean, part of my sharing the not flying is it makes it easier not to fly. Indeed. Because if you flew now, we'd all give you a hard time. So <laughs> Actually, I think everyone would be like, yeah. And then seeing inconvenient truth, I think a lot of people said, yeah, it's okay for uh, inconvenient people. It's okay for them to fly around a bunch because it was in service of a greater savings. Yeah. I think they're really saying it's okay for me to fly. Indeed, could be. It could be. But in, anyway, the point that I want to make is that that bundle of things is important in so, all of yeah, these decisions. Can you say the bundle again? So, so there's, there's decision, declaration, there is action, and then there is hanging out with people who are like you to keep you in the game. And so if you take on the subject of B Corp, I'll give you an example again on B Corp. 
there are many people who are kind of lurking around the system, speaking to me privately and saying, oh, I've been on the BIN, I'm close, and, but don't tell anybody yet. Uh-huh. But they're doing a whole lot of action inside their companies. Uh-huh. There are other people, one a couple of weeks ago, they've plastered all over their, their lobby that they're going to become a B Corp. And I don't think they've done anything, but they've told everybody that they have. So various steps. Various steps. And I think depending on where you are, who you are, how you operate, how your organization operates, all of them are valid. But I don't think that you can skip any of the stages. I think you need all of it. And I do think that the, if I look at, being in the sort of capitalist system. And if I look at the way that Danone uh, manages this and my boss particularly, there are times when a very big declaration is useful. So, you know, when you're doing well financially, you can make a huge declaration that you can change the world. If you have a bad quarter, it's probably not a good time for you to make a big declaration about changing the world because people will accuse you of trying to distract people. So it's a judgment call about what you do when in this whole thing. And I think your point about being onto ourselves about what we use as delaying tactics is a useful reminder, but it doesn't necessarily mean that awareness is not important to raise. Okay. Yeah. It's, I see what you're saying. It's, there's more involved. I got to work this out. Yeah. This is something I'm struggling with is as I see it, which is not how they see it. So I got to figure out how to make this, how to communicate this is that awareness. And I think people see like, if, if I commit to this, it's, I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be really hard. And so I'll work with awareness. For me, I know that, I mean, I see the same thing happening with a lot of people that happened with me. When I decided to go for a week to try to, to, I saw a lot of garbage was mine came from food packaging and I wanted to decrease that. What I try to say, but don't always say is that six months passed after I, I I thought, oh, let's see if I can go for a week without packaged food. And then I suddenly thought, I don't know how to do that. And so I thought, how I got to plan this out. And then the planning got really complicated. And so every time I would start planning, I I wouldn't finish planning. And so I wouldn't start the week. (laughs) And then I'd start feeling guilty and I'd start, not guilty from without, guilty because my own value and helpless because I knew that I could do it and I wasn't, but maybe I couldn't do it. Maybe I was living a life that was contrary to my values and powerless to do anything about it. And you start getting really swept up in all this stuff. And the easiest thing to do is say, I'll do it later. And so six months passed. And finally, one day I just said, this is going nowhere. And really what drove me was my style of teaching was very experiential, project-based and I felt like I was approaching it in a theoretical, academic, analytical way of studying these things, which doesn't get in, it wasn't, at least in this case, wasn't getting anything done, but made me feel like I was doing something because at least I'm thinking about it. And I just said, I know if I just have water and some fruit over the next week, I'm not going to die. So it starts this second and I'm going to go at least a week. And, you know, I don't know all the rules because like I had food in my, in my cupboards. So, you know, I, I worked them out as I did it. And I said, all right, I'll you know, I, I can finish food that's in the cup. I mean, my rule was I'm going to go for a week and I won't buy any food where packaging has to be thrown away and recycling counts as throwing away. So I don't know. Is it the best rule? I don't know, but it worked. And so that shift from, to me, that was a shift from trying to build, like awareness was there, but action, suddenly things motivate you pretty strongly when you go to the store and you're hungry and you're looking at the shelf where, well, that's in a box. That's got a rubber band. That's got a sticker. And you got broccoli. All right. I guess I'm eating broccoli. So that's step one. And without committing, it never would have happened. And I see people doing it. I don't know how to get them out of that. And I'm sorry, it's not that I want to get them out of that. It's that at the far side of it, if they, if it's not according to their values, that's their business. I'm not trying to change people's values. If it's with their values and something's, something compared to the value at hand, trivial is keeping them from something much more valuable, then I want to help them traverse, cross that chasm. And 
as long as they see studying and analysis as a step toward action, sometimes it is, but that's, I think that's like 1% of the time. Yes. It's interesting you say this because I actually have a slightly, I have have a kind of view on this and I'm also looking forward to the fact that you're probably going to give me a hard time for not being activist enough, but maybe not. And I think that in all conversations, we bring three qualities, credibility, logic, and empathy. And whenever I'm approaching a conversation that I'm sort of thinking about in advance, I think, I wonder which one I'll lead with. You have to cover all three, but I wonder which one I'll lead with. And what I noticed is that in my youth, I used to spend a lot of time leading with credibility because I was trying to demonstrate that I knew something. And then once I had some credibility, the next sort of decade of my life, I spent leading with logic because that's kind of the language of business in a way. Now, in this conversation, in this whole space of business as a force for good, partly because I'm older and I don't need to establish my credibility and because logic I'm finding is not a very useful teacher, I lead with empathy all the time because if I take that man that I started this conversation with who's devastated that his daughter thinks that he's not a cool guy because he's polluting the planet, he doesn't need to know anything from me about logical things. He doesn't need to know the facts. He knows the facts. Mm -hmm. But his heart is breaking and he's trapped because he runs a company and doesn't know what to do about it. So until I understand where he's coming from, I can't help him. And the question of what I do once I understand, I think is a bit more subtle because I think I'm a little Pollyanna-ish in the way that I speak about this stuff. And I think there is room sometimes to be a little bit more hard-edged on the other side of empathy. But I think empathy is a really important step because people are hurting because they don't know what to do. Yeah, that's what one of the things that um, a long time ago, before any of this stuff, I gave myself a rule, giving people advice that they haven't asked for. Imagine you telling a mother how to raise her child. Because I feel like around the world, everybody agrees that if you tell a mother how to raise her child, if she's not abusing the child, if she disagrees, she's right and you're wrong. Because my model for talking to people about changing their behavior environmentally is... This will get me in trouble. Imagine, I imagine I'm talking to someone who uses heroin and doesn't see a problem with it. It brings them joy. It makes them happy. Yeah, they know other people disagree, but it works. And I don't know, I've never met anyone who's, as far as I know, but I feel like they don't want to, if they don't want to change, it's not going to work. And people can live happily and not care about the environment. They can go for a long, long time, their whole lives without recognizing that they're living against their own values. Now, of course, people have conflicting values. Comfort and convenience, are those are values too. But the analogy I used a long time ago was if you walk out in the morning and maybe you stepped in a puddle or it was raining when you went out and your, feet, your socks get wet, then you can go the whole day. And if you're busy, you don't have time to change socks. When you get home at the end of the day and you take your socks off, you're like, oh my God, that was really, it didn't bother me consciously, but that was really getting me the whole day. And I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is like taking off wet socks that have been bothering me all day and it eats you up inside, except the socks is just your feet. And this is more like your soul. And I've never met anyone who started acting more responsibly environmentally, responsible to themselves, who then said, this is stupid. I'm going to go back to the way I was before. It hasn't happened yet. It's a small number because not many people have actually shifted that much. But the other side of it is all of what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation of relationships and values and purpose. And, and it's so much more purposeful. I feel like the B Corp transition, and this is just through this conversation, you know more about it than I do. It's taking responsibility, like responsibility, accountability for other, like in a more holistic way, a more inclusive way. And in my personal life, 
when I think of taking more responsibility, the word that I think of is mature, that I'm more mature and taking responsibility before I was mature. I didn't want responsibility. I didn't want accountability and responsibility and accountability mean I can't do things I used to like, and I must do things that I didn't used to like to do, but that's always been better. And people talk about the, the transition that I've gone through. They're like, it sounds so complicated. And there's a couple of groups that this totally blows my mind. One is entrepreneurs who want to take on the world and they take on these huge mammoth challenges and they love it. And then they say, it's impossible for me to, uh, you know, I'm like, how does this one part of your life, you're suddenly, you're able to take on the world and this other part, you're completely helpless. And the other is parents, because I have never changed a diaper and I've never gotten poop on my hands and they do and they're happy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how much easier is it to like get my hands dirty in a farm than to get poop on my hands? And the guy I was talking to uh, this morning, he realized that environmentally he was kind of kind of living by his values, kind of not. And I was like, you know, if your kid were sick, would you sometimes take him to the doctor? He's like, no, every time. I'm like, that's what it's about. And do you regret that? He's like, no. And I don't know. Without the context, it's not that. I probably got a little piece of what came up in the conversation. Yes. So you were talking about the differences in what people are willing to do, what they consider to be difficult, not difficult. Yeah, that's true. It's paradigm, right? It's perspective. And as you say, once you have, just as you use the children analogy, once you've been a parent, you're never not a parent. You know, you always know how that new world looks to you. Once you've made the environmental shifts, whichever ones they are, you can't, you don't go back. And that's why I think that, I challenged myself around the subject of empathy and whether I move strongly enough post the understanding. So once I've got to the bottom of why somebody is struggling with something, how do I use that as leverage to really shift them, challenge them, move them forward somehow, somewhere? And I think my stance has been quite invitational. This is what I'm doing. This is what we're doing. Let's talk. I wonder whether there are times to be more provocative, more pushy, more challenging. It's just an inquiry for me right now. My strategy has been to work with the most influential and well-known people because one of the most best predictors of people getting solar is more than how much money they make or their politics is if their neighbor has it. And I want to bring people who are in everyone's community. And so then people are like faced with, oh, you know, so-and-so is changing behavior. So-and-so is changing behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So now I want to switch. You talk about challenges and things like that. I want to offer you the chance. When you think about the environment, what do you think about? I'm going to sound a bit mushy now, but I think about the sheer beauty and extraordinariness of this system that allows us to survive and thrive on it. And so from, I've become much more, basic, you know, so I have a little piece of land that I gardened last year for the first time. And the miracle of planting seeds and eating radishes and carrots and Mm. rock, it's just an extraordinary thing. The miracle of breathing, the miracle of the sea. So I think about it with a sense of awe and I feel enormously sad about what we're doing, about how we've damaged the environment and how we are damaging the environment. And I think about it as a whole system. I do. I think about it as a, I don't think that there's a single point answer that's a kind of magical solution. I don't think it's just not flying or just not having packaged foods. It's a bundle of things that we do to make a difference. So sheer beauty, I mean, I heard beauty, miracle, and then sadly sadness. Mm. And it's a very complex set of things that are wrapped up together. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. I don't see one single thing anyone can do. 
But one thing I think of is that I think that the best way I know how to tackle a very complex problem is to solve a simple problem and then learn and grow, then apply that to something a little more complex and so on. And the path that I think that I'm on is, see, at first I thought, if I work on something little, it doesn't matter because like straws, like if everyone in the world stops using straws, we haven't really changed much. But I think of it differently now. It's not how big the first thing is. I think of the first things as scales. If you want to play Carnegie Hall and someone says, well, you got to start playing scales, one could rationally say a scale, that doesn't get me, that's like nothing. But it's also what everyone who got to Carnegie Hall did. Yes. <laughs> and so while it's not everything, it's one thing. And it, if you do that, and then if you think of it as like, I'm going to play one scale and be done, it's not going to work. But if you think of it as like, I would like to get somewhere far. I would like to solve this complex thing. And I'll start with this one thing and then build and build and build. So what I want to do is get people to start their first thing. Yes. And you've done many things, it sounds like. But what I'd like to do with guests is to ask them at their option to based on what their values are, and yours are actually pretty close to mine. And it, a lot of everyone has different answers for what it means to them, and remarkably different, surprisingly different. And based on what you about the beauty, the miracle, but the sadness, and the other things, the systemic nature, is there anything that you could do, however brief or temporary, you know, a scale? But I always have to say a couple things first. It doesn't have to fix all the world's problems, mm-hmm. and you don't have to do it all by yourself overnight. Mm-hmm. But it can't be telling someone else what to do. Yep. It has to be something measurable. Yep. Then I'll ask to make it a, a smart goal. So, yep. Well, it's interesting because you asked me this the other day, and I, you know, I said to you that I'm a vegan, and one of the things that I found interesting about becoming a vegan was kind of it decided me. I didn't decide it. It was kind of just there was just this moment when it was the right thing. And I know you don't use that label, but it's a useful label for me to explain what it is. And I think that the sense of wonder that I have around growing things and my joy about that has driven a whole lot of really health, much healthier choices around eating. But I think that for me, a big call is stuff, buying stuff. And so I have decided that my commitment to you... Not to me. Oh, to you. Oh, to me. But my public commitment then, okay. That's good. That's a good catch. My commitment to myself in front of you is that I am not going to buy any item of clothing or shoes for the next year. Oh, a year. Starting the no, second, starting Jennifer? No, starting now. Okay. So I often give people two things that having walked a lot of people through this, two challenges that often come up. One of them, is, the, the two are other people and traveling. And I'm not sure if they'll affect you, but the real issue is that sometimes things unforeseen come up and... Travel often puts things out of your control. Other people, sometimes they impose obligations that, that, you know, if if your thing is not to eat meat and your mom cooks your steak, sometimes people, it's like the mother is above, you know, I don't know. And so the issue is, I just want to prepare people. You can't prepare for everything, but just that's a big one. And I I would- That seems like quite an easy one. I can't imagine why anybody else is going to get in the way of my clothing or shoes purchasing. Why would they? I don't know. But a lot of people around this time of year say that they're going to go to the gym twice a year for the next year. And oh, no, that's, yeah. No, I'm, I'm good say with that it. you go somewhere. Yeah. You got a meeting. Airline lost your luggage. Yeah. And you, you're wearing like I'll a pair of shorts. I'll be wearing something. Yeah. That'd be a good story. Yeah. So that's, yeah. The thing is, I find that the more- I could borrow something. The more effective I find someone as a leader, the more that they say, they look at, the, like Jim, the parent, he's like, let's figure it out. Yeah. And so I just want to prepare you that yeah, like, I'm things excited. come up. I'm excited. I think it's going to be good. And I'll tell everybody. So- Actually, this podcast began, I was on a, a bulletin board online and a bunch of people, it was in October of last year. And people were saying, what commitments are you going to make for November? And everyone's like, I'm going to do X, I'm going to do Y, you know, lose weight and stop smoking and all this stuff, right? Like November 2nd, people are writing, oh, I'm off the wagon. <laughs> 
And I put that I was going to launch my podcast. And do you know when I launched my podcast? November 30th, like 1159. To me, that's November. Sure. But uh, yeah, it's like, some, it works for different, differently for different people. I just want to help prepare people not to get into where they say, oh, it didn't work. I give up. Oh yeah. No, I think it's, yeah. Because a lot of people, it's like, like Jim was, he couldn't get started. And so we had to rethink things. And so we're in New York City. So there's sirens in the background. That's the way it goes. And everybody handles it in different ways. Sure. And I'm going to be very interested. It kills me that I have to wait a whole year. It doesn't kill me. But uh, <laughs> I'll send you progress updates if you want. No, I think it's going to be fun. And I hope we get to talk between now and then. Yeah, sure. I'm here. I'm not far. Well, it's been a pleasure. Same here. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for coming over and thank you for taking the time. And, and yeah, I was talking with Tansi and with Vincent and both previous guests on the show. And I forget which one said I should talk to you. And the other one said, yes, yes, yes. And they were both like, yes, you definitely talk to her. So I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Fascinated by B Corps as I am from this conversation, I could ask her more questions. But I've learned enough about learning by doing that the next step for me to learn more is to do it. And I've started the process of converting my LLC into a B Corp. So everyone listening, keep me accountable. And I can't add much more beyond what Lorna said. But if your company is not a B Corp, it sounds to me like a great way to build relationships with the decision makers and the people higher up in the corporate hierarchy. That is, if your company, its employees, or its customers are calling for more environmental action or caring about the employees or caring about the community, which sounds to me like basically all companies today, sounds like it's a way to get ahead. I recommend you look into it. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.